Hey there, welcome to Beyond the Bikini podcast, where you can enhance your body and your mind. My name is Nicole Ferrier, exercise science grad, certified personal trainer, bikini competitor, and coach. On this podcast, you will learn more about my experience in the fitness industry, competing in bikini competitions, mental health, and how to gain more success in your own life in your fitness journey. So sit back, relax, or power through this cardio session and enjoy. Beyond the Bikini, we talk a lot about training and nutrition. Trust me, it can be challenging to hit your fitness goals on your own. There is so much out there when it comes to working out, hitting your nutrition, and finding the plan that's right for you and your goals. Now, one thing that can make that a lot easier is hiring a coach and getting support towards your goals. I'm happy to say that I do offer online health and fitness coaching. I have plans that vary from support with training and nutrition and just your nutrition, and I even offer challenges throughout the year. If that sounds like something you're interested in, make sure you check out that description box down below. You can also find more details on my coaching services at NicoleFerrierFitness.com or even on Instagram at NicoleFerrierFitness. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Beyond the Bikini Radio. I'm excited for today's guest. We have Dan Feldman on, or also known as the Power Lifter Dietitian. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be on. I'm happy that you're here today. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and, you know, where you even got the name Power Lifter Dietitian from? Yeah, well, very simple. I'm a power lifter and I'm a dietitian, so I figured... (laughs) That was uh, pretty much it. But no, I'm, you know, uh, obviously registered dietitian. I became an RD in middle of 2019. Uh, uh, Shortly before that, I got my Master of Science in Human Nutrition. So I've got that background as well. Um, I, a few years back, got the personal training qualification. So I'm a personal trainer as well. And yeah, as my name suggests, I am a competitive power lifter. I hold my own at local meets, nothing, nothing too crazy, but, um, you know, I do have a, a pretty strong strength background and, uh, you know, that, that interest in, in strength sports, powerlifting, building muscle, you know, was part of kind of what, what led me down the dietitian route to some extent. Yeah. Well, what in particular would you say brought you towards dietetics? Cause I feel like that field in particular, it's very like female dominant. Sure. So like as a male, like what really sparked your interest in that sure. field? So I'll try to kind of give the cliff notes version of my background to not take up too much time, but interesting enough, I originally, when I was, you know, late high school, looking into colleges, wanted to be a professional musician. Um, actually guitar, acoustic fingerstyle guitar was my main instrument. I studied classically. Uh, so that was what I was going to do. But then I realized that, you know, unless I wanted to be a music teacher or maybe a music producer, it would be incredibly difficult to make a, a decent living, uh, with music. So it's still a hobby, but I decided to, uh, pursue other stuff. And, and yeah, going into my freshman year at a university of Delaware, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I happened to take a, a nutrition 100 class, just a basic nutrition class. Um, and I really excelled at it. I found it very interesting. Um, and also, uh, you know, I can delve more into this if you want, but I did have in uh, late childhood and early adolescence, a, um, you know, history of, of disordered eating. And, and uh, although I was never officially diagnosed, for all intents and purposes, I did have bulimia. I had an eating disorder. Um, 
And, you know, so that was something I obviously struggled with, you know, was kind of on the heavier side when I was 10, 11, 12, um, you know, and struggled with the, that kind of disordered eating and uh, body image issues, you know, in my teenage years, you know, looking in the mirror, thinking that I was fat, you know, because I didn't have a six pack and um, that negatively affecting quality of my life. And, you know, then when I was like 18 or 19, started to get really into lifting weights and, uh, you know, all of that, you know, after that history, after, you know, taking that nutrition 100 class, um, kind of culminated in me choosing dietetics. I remember actually meeting with my academic advisor and uh, talking about kind of options regarding nutrition ex and exercise science. And she said I could pursue something called uh, dietetics and I could become a registered dietitian. I thought that sounded very official. Uh, so I decided <laughs> I would just do it. So then I did that. And then that, you know, kind of uh, when I finished that um, um, bachelor's degree, there happened to be a, a master's program open um, that had a nice little stipend. So I did that. And uh, yeah, so it kind of just snowballed from there. It's really a combination um, of things. But you are right that, you know, at least in the United States, it is definitely a uh, female dominated, dominate, uh, female dominated profession, uh, something like probably 80 or 90% of dietitians are, are generally women, I find. Yeah, I do appreciate you opening up about like your relationship with food, because that's something we talk a lot about a lot on here of beyond the bikini, sure. um, something I've experienced with myself. Like I've, I tell people I've struggled with like every eating disorder under the rainbow or whatever, yeah. um, because there is like a huge spectrum of like struggling. And I do feel like, you know, when it comes to nutrition and education that it can bring you like a sense of clarity when it comes yeah. to, um, understanding food and how, a lot of like the diet industry, diet culture can be super confusing and very dangerous, especially to like such a young mind. And so I'm sure as you were getting more educated, you were realizing that those fears didn't really need to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely, you know, kind of this false, I guess, fear, this false idea that, you know, I had to have a six pack in order to be attractive for the opposite sex, et cetera, et cetera, or that, you know, I would only be good enough whatever the hell that meant, if I looked a certain way or had a very particular look. And it took me many years to, to, to realize that uh, that shit just doesn't matter that much. <laughs> yeah. Um, at least for me anyway, again, I'm not trying to uh, say there's anything wrong with fat loss or trying to get really lean, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, it was not as big of a deal as I made it, you know, in my mind. Yeah. And so when you're working with your clients, what would you say majority of the issues or concerns that they're having, um, are they coming to you with? And like, what are you mostly working on with them? So, I mean, it varies, you know, since I do uh, take health insurance here in the United States, I do see kind of a wide variety of, of uh, clients, many of whom are, you know, from the general population, I would say the majority are some form of, of weight management or body composition. Um, you know, a lot of people, they're just kind of, you know, your average folk, they're not obsessed with fitness, like, like, you know, you or I might be, but, you know, maybe they are 20, 30, 50, 100 pounds overweight, and they want help, you know, and they, mm -hmm. and they need guidance. And they've heard a lot of uh, things online, and they've got a lot of conflicting information. So, you know, they need someone to really, you know, kind of uh, separate fat, fact from fiction. Um, I do have some people who do, you know, struggle with, with, you know, disordered eating or something like that, and they need kind of more tailored, um, you know, guidance and support towards that. Uh, you know, I've got some people who are 
more so strength athletes. So it really depends. But, you know, like I said, generally speaking, it's people looking for body composition change or, or weight loss of, of um, some kind. And, you know, the exact approach that I use with different clients, it's very, very individual. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I really uh, do not, you know, do any kind of one cookie cutter approach. You know, I, when I'm working with a client, I'm on a video chat with them one-on-one and they have my complete undivided attention and I'm there for them. And I do whatever I can to support them, whether that be listen, whether that be uh, give particular advice. It can look like a lot of different things, but um, yeah, that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, being a registered dietitian, it can be frustrating when you see like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, like just social media in general, how much poor nutrition advice gets spread around. And I'm sure that a lot of these clients are coming to you with maybe misconceptions around food or fears around food. So how would you say, or I should more so rephrase this, what would you say are some of the main misconceptions that are being spread around social media that you see that are currently kind of bothering you um, being a coach? I mean, there's always, you know, there's always a lot. I mean, one of the biggest ones that I don't see it as much on my social media, but I hear it a lot from clients is the whole carbs thing that if you need to lose weight, uh, or if you want to lose weight, that you should just not eat carbs or reduce carbs. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I'm honestly quite amazed that that's still like a thing. You know what I mean? That we have to keep saying like it's carbs are not a big deal, but there's still such this huge fear around carbs and carbs being fattening is, is really one of the biggest things and kind of going along with that, but just more broadly, uh, it's the idea that certain foods or food components are, um, good or bad. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is really a lot of the crux of the misinformation is labeling foods as good and bad or labeling ingredients, um, as good and bad. And also, kind of along with that fostering kind of an us versus them mentality, like, ah, oh, the, um, you know, big sugar or, or FDA or whoever is out to get us and they're giving us wrong information and I will show you the right way. Never eat spinach. Just a lot of this kind of, yeah, just sort of us versus them mentality, demonizing certain foods or certain ingredients. Um, cause that's the sexy thing to do. I mean, yeah. you know, generally speaking, a lot of, um, slimy influencers, they're looking for likes and clicks and, and people to buy their supplements and books. And it's sexy to tell people like you've been lied to and what everything you've been told about nutrition is wrong. And it's not your fault. It's the big industry or big companies and all that. So, so that's, you know, it's a great way to get likes and follows, but it's pretty, um, you know, disingenuous because uh, in reality, uh, really th- there, there are no good banned foods. I'm, I'm, you know, as I'm sure you uh, well know, and your audience knows really food is, is, you know, on a spectrum and um, much of kind of the common sense nutrition advice that we've heard, you know, eat a diet rich in fruits, fruits and vegetables, eat a lot of lean protein, whole grains, uh, limit, but don't, you don't have to remove entirely, you know, uh, uh, simple sugars, sweets, fried foods, et cetera. That stuff isn't sexy because we've all heard it before, but it's the stuff that's the truth. Um, So yeah, it's really just a combination of those things. Again, I mean, the whole carbs are bad thing. And then just more generally labeling certain foods as, as bad or toxic. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of influencers now where you'll see they are usually in a grocery store roaming the aisles and mm -hmm. picking out a certain food and just talking about why, you know, it's going to cause cancer or kill you earlier. That's making you fat or, you know, it's always these big, horrible things, right? Yeah. And And people have to understand that when someone is trying to sell you something out of a, a bad place, this could be an idea, this could be a product. If they're using fear or if they're using insecurity, it's probably not coming from a good spot. I mean, I even see this with weight training. You know, you see the girl that talks about like, you don't want a big blocky waist. So do this exercise instead. And so again, it's preying off of insecurities and that's what gets people watching. And they think that's reality because, you know, they have fear involved too, but you just got to be a smart consumer and, you know, make sure that you're really asking yourself, like, does it rationally make sense that a vegetable would be bad or that a fruit would be bad? You know? And I think that's what's so hard for people is there is, I feel like a huge lack of nutrition education, you know, when you're going to school, at least public school, that is. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, m most of this stuff, much of this stuff, you know, you're not kind of taught in just general school and especially, you know, the, uh, you know, the ability to really read and dissect research. So if you see an influencer, and I know they do this, um, where they all say, ah, oh, the spinach is terrible for you because the oxalates and they'll pull up a study that says something about oxalates and something negative, most people aren't going to read past that and they'll be like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a study. That means they know what they're talking about. Um, when in reality, if you do actually 99% of the time with these influencers, when they make just ridiculous claims like spinach is bad for you and you pull up the study, it's, it's not, you know, relevant. You know, I've seen yeah. a lot of uh, these kind of influencers, like I've seen lately, um, I saw Paul Saladino did this and I think, uh, Amy Shah, I think is her name, also did this too, demonizing gluten. And they both cited the same study, which was saying how, how gluten is bad for your gut microbiome or whatever. And they cited a study that looked at gluten and the gut microbiome in people with celiac and people with uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, uh, mm -hmm. which is completely not it's a relevant special population. To most people. Like, yeah, if you're celiac, you should not eat gluten. If you have celiac disease, you should not eat gluten. That, that's obvious. Um, and there's just a lot of that kind of using misleading uh, PubMed abstracts to lead people astray. Um, mm -hmm. And it's difficult, you know, uh, for, for most people and causes a lot of confusion for people. Um, but it's, you know, the state of the industry today, unfortunately. Yeah, I think for listeners too, you have to understand that studies don't just happen like out of someone's good heart, like studies get funded. So sure. you also have to look at like who's funding them too, because there can be bias in studies. Yeah, I mean, there, that, that is true. Like, yes, there's definitely um, bias. And when you're reading a study, you do want to uh, note, you know, the funding source if there is one and, um, you know, kind of determine if, if you know, that could cause bias. But uh, I'll, I'll also say at the same time that um, even if a study is funded by a company that could have a vested interest, that doesn't necessarily mean we should discard the study's results. You know, I would just say that in those cases, we really need to read the study and read the methods and really ensure that it looks like things are done appropriately, that the statistics are, you know, uh, as they should be and that the results, you know, seem to make sense. So I would say it's, you know, it's definitely something to look out for, you know, it's just all the more reason that 
you know, when we are interpreting uh, research that we, you know, really read the methods, you know, which, which most yeah. people don't do. Most people just read the abstracts. Yeah. Well, let's go into kind of a changing in this conversation is like people overcomplicating things. And these are usually the people that are getting into the studies and trying to be quote optimal. Sure. And they tend to um, kind of have like analysis paralysis. So what is your take on like being optimal versus like, you know, being sustainable or actually fitting into people's lives? Yeah. So I think there's a spectrum between, you know, just having things as simple as possible and, you know, using, I mean, we should always be using evidence-based methods, but really trying to get in the nitty gritty of, you know, the details and trying to optimize everything. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with trying to be like super, super optimal and try, trying to get nitty gritty in the details, as long as you've got the big rocks down first. You know, yeah. if you want to play around with your meal timing and, and try and kind of have car carbohydrate, you know, a certain amount of hours before your workout to try and optimize your fuel and, and try and have protein at not too long after your workout. And you want to optimize, you know, your, I don't know, caffeine intake or, or, you know, what have you, or your circadian rhythms, nothing wrong with that, you know, mm -hmm. but if you're not doing the more basic stuff first, it's really kind of all for nothing. You know, I think about people who, um, you know, try and, you know, optimize every aspect of their training, you know, um, trying to follow really, really specific, you know, periodization schemes and um, doing, I don't know, blood flow restricted training or doing um, just really kind of complicated stuff, you know, uh, constantly changing movement patterns. I don't know, whatever it is, trying to overcomplicate things, but they're only sleeping four hours per night, you know? Yeah. Um, like if you're, if you're not getting, you know, a good night's sleep on most nights or, or and, uh, you know, taking steps to manage stress, if at all possible, eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, um, you know, aiming to maintain a, a, a healthy body, body composition. And obviously there can be some debate as to exactly what that looks like and doing some, some form of resistance training. You know, if you're not doing, if you are not focusing on those big blocks, I don't think it makes sense to really focus on the nitty gritty. Um, I would, mm -hmm. you know, aim to, to first really get the, the, not sexy stuff um, down. Same really goes with most supplements, you know, um, regardless of the supplement, you know, it's not really going to do much for you if your training is suboptimal or you're not training at all, or you're not sleeping well, or you're eating uh, uh, very poorly and not eating enough or eating too much or what, what have you, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of like learning how to walk before you run. And I think yeah. people get ahead of themselves and then they end up thinking, you know, this isn't working for me, but in reality, they're just focusing on the wrong things. And, you know, I, I tell my clients often that, you know, your consistency, your habits, that's the foundation to your fitness, in including your relationship with food. So those things have to come first before you worry about all these advanced things, because if you start worrying about the advanced stuff, you're going to get ahead of yourself. And, yeah. you know, don't get me wrong, like even being in this space and having so many years, and I guess you could say we're a little bit of like fitness fanatics, right? Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. yeah, we still slip up, you know, there's plenty of times where I catch myself where I'm like, dang, like you just messed up your sleep this week, or you're short on water this week. There's so many times where I still catch myself on like, hey, we need to, you know, work on these habits because it can slip from someone more advanced too. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, generally speaking, I know it's it, it can sound very repetitive. And I always kind of tell my clients, it's very kind of repetitive and simple, but, you know, really focusing on the big blocks, you know, so again, trying to, 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 you know, do what we can to support a good night's sleep, managing stress, whatever that kind of looks like for us, um, eating an appropriate amount of, of calories for our goals. And that doesn't mean we have to track calories, but having habits that facilitate that, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and like I said, eating lots of fruits and vegetables, basic stuff and doing that consistently, making them habits doesn't sound sexy, but that is what gets you most of the way there. Yeah. Cause it's going to be hard to change anything if you don't even know what you're doing in the first place. You know, yeah. it, it's like that saying, um, what gets measured gets managed. And if yeah. you're just kind of winging it, like you can't really measure anything and you can't measure yeah. progress. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So definitely having some, some plan or some structure there, um, would benefit most people, you know, uh, who have pretty significant, you know, fitness goals. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's go into a hot topic for the nutrition space. And that's going to be artificial sweeteners. Um, it's so funny because even to this day, if I'm drinking like a diet Coke, I will get family members making comments on like, why are you drinking that? Like, that's so bad for you. Even my dad will always make comments on like how horrible artificials are for you. So what are your thoughts on artificial sweeteners? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're fine. <laughs> Generally speaking, like I, I, I'll get into a little, a little bit of the nitty gritty, but, but in short, like, you know, having them in moderation, I mean, it's totally fine. And most of the claims specifically regarding cancer or weight gain are, are, are not really supported by the literature, um, you know, to go into, I'll just spend a minute or two going into a little bit of the nitty gritty. So first off, there are several different sweeteners, uh, low or zero calorie sweeteners that exist, and they all do have different molecular structures. They are all, uh, they all vary in their, their uh, level of sweetness. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to necessarily put them all in the same category and just lump them all together. So, you know, we've mm -hmm. got aspartame, we've got sucralose, which is like Splenda, right? We've got stevia, um, saccharin, although you see that kind of less common these days. There isn't much saccharin on the market. Uh, there is one called accessible tame uh, potassium or ACE-K. That's usually used along with like aspartame. Like I think at Diet Coke, they use aspartame and ACE-K. There are sugar alcohols like mannitol and sorbitol. And there is also erythritol, which is also a sugar alcohol, although it's metabolized a little bit differently. Um, generally speaking, you know, uh, reasonable consumption of any of these is, is, is safe. Um, the FDA has set um, adequate daily, uh, acceptable daily intake levels, I should say, or ADIs for each of these sweeteners based on, uh, you know, toxicological studies uh, um, to determine like the, the highest dose uh, in animal studies that was shown to cause no adverse effect multiplied by in a, 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 in a safety factor, usually like a, a 10 time safety factor. So the highest amount that's safe in animals multiplied by a safety factor, and that's the ADI. Um, and it's basically the amount of the substance, uh, in this case, artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners, uh, considered safe to consume each day over a person's lifetime. Now, to give you an idea of where these ADIs are at, 
for aspartame, and funny enough, aspartame is one of the ones that are most demonized. Um, mm -hmm. The ADI is 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, which comes out to 75 packets of tabletop sweetener of, of the equal sweetener per day. Um, I don't know exactly how many Diet Cokes that would be, but it would be a lot. Um, so, so that's very, very high. So, so we're pretty good there. Um, Splenda is, or, or uh, Superlose, I should say, it's a little bit lower about five milligrams per kilogram per day or, or 23 packets per day. Um, interesting stevia, um, it's funny. And stevia, I'm not saying stevia is unsafe, but a lot of people use stevia because it's natural. Uh, so people are like, ah, oh, it's safer. Uh, the ADI for stevia uh, is just four milligrams per kilogram of a body weight compared to 50 for aspartame. So that comes out to about nine packets per day. Again, I'm not saying it's bad, but you know, just to note. Um, but yeah, and then when you look at, at the research, um, a lot of the uh, concern around artificial sweeteners, first off, comes from the fact that they're just artificial and people have this natural uh, naturalistic fallacy. They think that just because something is artificial or a chemical made in a lab, that it's inherently bad. Um, there were some there were some studies that came out by a researcher named uh, Dr. Mirando Sofridi. Uh, and rodent research uh, that uh, found, you know, I, I think uh, uh, tumors, you know, uh, tumor growth from uh, artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners. Um, but his research, from my understanding, was criticized by a lot of the scientific community uh, due to various issues with the uh, methods. Uh, generally speaking, uh, artificial sweeteners, at least some of the common ones, have, are, are pretty safe uh, in terms of, you know, any potential um, genotoxicity, which is basically the, the potential for uh, something to, to uh, damage DNA in cells and thereby affect cancer risk. There's actually a review that came out in 2021 that found, generally speaking, um, uh, these non-nutritive sweeteners were not genotoxic. Um, there's also you know observational research, some of which suggests that, generally speaking, people who use non-nutritive sweeteners more tend to be unhealthier. They tend to have higher rates of obesity, higher rates of, you know, diabetes and, and early mortality. However, much, much of that is likely driven by what's called the reverse causality. So basically, it's not necessarily that the sweeteners are causing these health issues, but it's that people who have obesity, people who have uh, type 2 diabetes are more likely to use artificial sweeteners. Um, in fact, there was actually a recent uh, study came out about a year, I think, ago uh, from the American Diabetes Association. They looked at this observational uh, research, but uh, they controlled through various uh, potential confounding factors. And um, they used some statistical techniques to actually look at the effect in this observational research of substituting uh, sugar sweetened beverages for low or non uh, uh, lower zero calorie sweetened beverages, and that substitution actually led to favorable uh, changes in body weight, lower body weight, and lower risk for disease. Um, and finally, yeah. I'll, I'll stop blabbering in, in about a minute. Um, randomized controlled trials, which are better for looking at what causes what, um, although they are more short term, have generally found that that uh, replacing sugary beverages with artificially sweetened or non-nutritively sweetened beverages can induce weight loss. They don't seem to impact blood glucose or blood lipids. Now, I'm not saying that people should drink tons and tons and tons and tons of Diet Coke or use tons and tons of artificial sweeteners. 
Um, you know, I think anytime people consume weird amounts of anything, like just huge amounts of anything that could lead to issues. But yeah, that's a long winded way to say, like, I think they're fine. <laughs> yeah, they're fine yeah. in moderation, right? Anything right. can be toxic if you're over consuming it. I mean, heck, people have even drowned themselves before by drinking yeah. too much water. So it's kind of like, realistically, how much are you going to have? And I think we don't need to be stressing out about, you know, a diet Coke or, you know, yeah. even like a Powerade zero or whatever it might be. Like, it's more so like, is that the only thing you're drinking? Cause then yes, obviously that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, this comes to kind of common sense. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't use the stuff like nonstop. Um, and really the only reason that I say that is, you know, there is some, you know, uh, research looking at, you know, sweet taste receptors that we do have in the gastrointestinal tract. So theoretically, you know, maybe consuming a lot of these sweeteners could cause some metabolic or, or appetite issues there. Not hundred percent sold on that, but, but again, like I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. You know, you want to have some diet soda or what have you. Um, it's not a big deal. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to even ask of artificials is like an insulin response or like a glucose response. Cause I've heard like, oh, if you drink artificials, you're going to spike your insulin, but it seems kind of confusing since there's not really calories. So do you know of any research on that? I don't. Um, like I said, I, they're, because we do have sweet taste receptors in the GI tract. Um, there are some researchers who have expressed concern um, that activation of those sweet taste receptors by non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners um, without a co-committant, you know, uh, uh, calorie intake uh, could cause metabolic issues or appetite issues. Um, mm -hmm. But there is no research that I am aware of to indicate that just drinking a Diet Coke on its own, uh, you know, or drinking a, a low or zero calorie beverage that's sweetened with uh, zero calorie sweetener on its own will have any effect. In fact, I'm quite certain that it won't affect insulin or blood glucose because insulin, uh, you know, insulin rises, you know, in, in response to blood sugar, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, in order for, for generally speaking, in, in order for blood glucose, for blood sugar to increase, you need to actually consume, uh, consume sugar, consume carbohydrate, there is, I'm pretty sure there has been research to suggest that maybe, uh, and again, this is like really splitting hairs, but maybe consuming like a, a sucralose or, or a sweetener um, along with a carbohydrate meal may uh, increase the glucose response to that meal, um, maybe due to those sweet taste receptors. Um, I may actually even be misremembering that, but I think that has been something that has been demonstrated at some point. Um, mm -hmm. but again, I don't mean that to really sound an alarm or anything like that. Um, I, I, much of this stuff, like kind of what we were talking about, really focusing on the big picture and not the, the super minutia. Most of this stuff is, is minutia. Um, yeah. you know, if you are eating, if you are, uh, following a dietary regimen that has you eating an appropriate amount of calories, again, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to track, but um, whether that means eating enough calories to support, you know, your performance goals or, or eating at a calorie deficit, if your goal is to lose fat, as long as you're doing that and eating a decent, you know, ratio of protein, carbs, and fats that support your goals, you're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables. Um, 
you know, and, and have those big pieces in the play. I mean, I, I just don't see how consuming even a, a pretty high amount of artificial sweeteners would really cause much of any um, impact there. It's just not something I would worry about. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of um, like fear involved and in, like everyone's trying to find like the, the next thing to like hate on or to sure. fear. Um, and another thing I've been seeing a lot too, is just like constant monitoring of one's glucose levels. You know, you see those monitors and I think it's fine for like the fitness nerd or someone that obviously actually needs it. But I almost feel like we're stressing out about things that we don't need to be stressing out about, which is like not helping our relationship with food either. Yeah. And, you know, with that specifically, obviously, you know, people who do have specific conditions that, you know, involve blood glucose, like diabetes, um, that can be very useful. And, and, you know, there are some people who just want to do it because they like the data and that's fine. But um, the issue that that, that, you know, the over-reliance on whether it be blood glucose monitoring or trying to optimize every little thing from a practical level. And remember, we, even, you know, though we want to look at the research and, and ideally want to be optimal, we have to make sure that it's, we have to, we have to not miss the forest for the trees. And for a lot of people, especially, you know, many of the people I work with, like I said, are from the general population. They're not obsessed with fitness. They're just trying yeah. to, you know, get healthier and live longer. Um, most people, well, really everyone has only so much mental bandwidth and mental energy of things they can focus on. You know, people have kids, people have jobs, they've got other things, you know, so if you try and, and give people too many things to focus on, they will crash, you know, so our job as practitioners, again, there are some people who are just really like all of the minutia, and that's fine, but at least for the majority of people, uh, you know, we really have to make sure that people are uh, focusing on the big picture, you know, and, yeah. and that they are doing the the boring big picture stuff consistently, um, you know, and, and we want to be careful not to uh, give people kind of too much to focus on, because like I said, people only have so much self-discipline, only so much uh, mental bandwidth or mental energy. So, um over-focusing on kind of those details that probably don't matter that much um, is really what can lead people astray. Yeah, I think everybody, like you were saying, like they have a cap. Yep. And this is why, like, I'm sure that you do this with your clients too, is like not everybody submits all the information that I would like for them to because I have to meet them with where they're at. You know, one person in particular, even taking measurements can be too much for them or even collecting like, their sleep or steps, it just might be too much for them. And so in that case, you know, I have to meet that person with where they're at and what they feel comfortable collecting, because who knows, maybe down the line, they start managing their schedule a little bit more, it starts to feel easier, and then they can start to collect more variables. But don't feel like if you're starting your fitness journey that you have to go from maybe not tracking anything to then tracking everything, because you're going to get super overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think as a practitioner, it's important for us to really know our clients and really know where our clients are at, you know, and, and that, which is tough, you know, and, and, you know, especially sort of depending on how you communicate with clients, you know, if you're communicating, you know, over email or text uh, can be more difficult to kind of gauge, you know, where they're at. And, you know, that's why, you know, since when I work with clients, it's all live one-on-one, -on -one, you know, virtual. Um, I really, listen, you know, and I'm present yeah. with them to really get a feel 
through our, you know, where they're at and, and to really be careful and to strike a balance between, you know, giving them the necessary information and, you know, that generally speaking, depending on someone's goal, they may have to get a bit uncomfortable and they will have to work hard, but also meeting them where they're at. Um, it's, and it's difficult, you know, but as practitioners, it's very important for us to have that sense of our clients. Yeah. And even like as a client, like for everyone listening that maybe has a coach, like make sure that you're also communicating with your coach, like what your needs are and what your concerns and questions are, because that's how you get the most out of coaching. Um, That's how you're going to get the most support. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, people feel a little insecure to ask certain questions because they feel dumb or they feel like they should already know it. And it's like, no, like we don't expect you to know it. Like there's so many people that come to me and they don't, I, I always think of, have you seen the movie Mean Girls at all? Yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. it's been a while, but yeah. Do you know where um, Regina George like picks up butter and she's like, is butter a carb? I do remember and that, yeah. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, That's yeah. what I think about because like people don't know anything about nutrition yeah. and like in that movie, she, like the other characters like, yes, like butter's a carb. I'm like, oh my gosh. But like, yeah. anyway, it's like so fascinating, like how little people know, but like we get it because we didn't know it either. You know, we didn't like come into this world, like knowing everything when it comes to nutrition, like we had to learn our way too. Yeah. And it's, that is, it's very important. It's very important for us, you know, as practitioners, as fitness fanatics, you know, to, to realize that most people are not like us, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that's okay. And, and, and especially on, on social media, this is tough, but to not, or try not to, to, you know, when people get stuff wrong and and people say things that are wrong, trying not to be too combative, combative, um, which, you know, again, kind of in the social media landscape of, of misinformation, I mean, some people are intentionally providing wrong information um, just to, to swindle people out of money, you know, so, so that's a different story. But oftentimes people just don't know, you know, and, and being a uh, friendly and helpful uh, guide for people um, is, is one of the most valuable things that you can be is, is just being that, you know, um, genuinely helpful person and, and, and being non-judgmental and really being present and being there for your client or for whoever, you know, it can really make a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Dan, what is something that you're excited about, you know, maybe in your business or in certain research right now that you want to share with us? Sure. So I'll go with my business. I, so as I mentioned, um, I primarily work with clients through their health insurance. So, so I, I bill people come to me. Oftentimes they find me through Instagram or through their health insurance companies in the United States. Um, and I bill their health insurance companies. And oftentimes they don't pay, they don't have to pay anything because their health insurance companies pay me, uh, which is awesome. Uh, so what I'm working on now, and I've actually already started doing is a program mentorship program for other dietitians in the United States who want to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and want to learn how to bill insurance for their services because uh, um, it's really, it's really something special, you know. Um, because you know a lot of people don't have the money to spend, uh, you know, for a registered dietitian out of pocket per session could be 150, 200 per uh, US uh, USD per fe- uh, per session, uh, and a lot of people don't have that kind of money, you know, and and you know, while we, you know, love to kind of be those fitness fanatics, um, there's a lot of people 
just in the general population who just really need to know the fundamentals who are struggling with obesity or, or type two diabetes or what have you, and just kind of need the basics, but you know, they can't afford good help and they just see what they see on social media. Um, so being able to reach those people can really have a huge impact. And like, I mean, it is not that everything's about money, but, but, you know, dietitians can get paid very well, you know, by health insurance companies. So anyway, that's something I'm, I'm, it's kind of my next thing that I'm working on. Um, at some point in the future, I'm also looking to, to make some courses on how to uh, read and interpret research for other healthcare practitioners. Because um, I do really enjoy reading research. And I think it's, you know, unless you have, you have like a, a, a master's degree and with statistics and all of that, it can be very difficult mm-hmm. to read a, a research paper and really know what you're reading. So at some point, uh, that's going to be what I'm working on. But yeah, those are just a few things that I'm really, you know, really, really interested in, in and, and really has me hyped, you know, for the coming months and, and, and years. Yeah, that's exciting. I kind of wish more professions would do that too. Like not yeah. even just dietitians, like therapists or, you know, I, I, and I'm sure maybe some, some of them do, but a lot of um, healthcare, as you know, in the United States can be a lot of money. Yep. So, you know, being able to use your insurance is, you know, a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for practitioners, it can be a headache, at, especially at first dealing with insurance companies. So I'm hoping to bridge that gap you know, yeah. between dietitians or, you know, or, or what have you, who do want to start billing insurance, but they're overwhelmed by the process. And um, yeah, yeah, can make a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dan, where can people find you if they're wanting to contact you or, you know, reach out? Yeah, so really the best place to just see where I like exist is probably on my Instagram, uh, powerlifter dietitian, pretty straightforward there at powerlifter dietitian on Instagram. Um, you can also go to my website, danfeldmanrg.com that has a pretty bare bones website, but I explain a little bit about who I am and, um, you know, my services and you can book an appointment on there as well. Um, if you want to shoot me an email, uh, that, uh, best place to email me would be dan at danfeldmanrd.com. Thank you again, Dan. And for everyone listening, you can find Dan's information down below.